He says in Matthew 16 and 19, And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It's a declaration that wasn't something merely given to one man, but one who simply represented the institution that Christ would build, the church. Because the prior, verse prior to it said, I build my church. The gates of hell would not prevail. And then it's unto the church that these keys of the kingdom are given. In that moment, Peter was the vocal one, and so the statement was made because he's been the voice for the rest to declare what they felt and declared the Peter wasn't the only one that believed Christ was the son of the living God in that crowd. I'm telling you that. He was, ended up being the spokesperson. And so the Lord stated that there the keys would be given. And he mentions an amazing thing. Whatsoever you will bind on earth, whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth. Yes. Someone translate this, shall have been bound in heaven. There will be an idea in that earth or in the, the institution of the church on earth would carry out and, and be endowed with the authority of heaven, that what heaven is bound, the church will express and have that very power to bind here. What heaven is loose, that the church here would loose and be the very instrument through which God would uh, demonstrate his authority. We are the authoritative instrument of Christ in the earth. We'll mention more, no doubt about that later. And in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 28 says, Wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. The Lord has not brought us into a temporal kingdom. <laughs> Hallelujah. We have received a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence, and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Hallelujah. The church, he said, possesses the keys of the kingdom. Key indicates authority and access. The church has the key of the kingdom. And he said, we've received this kingdom. And it cannot be moved. <laughs> Woo, hallelujah. That means Russia can't blow it off the map. That means the Democrats can't vote it out of office. <laughs> Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. That means China can't give it any economic sanctions and starve it to death. Oh, no, sir. This kingdom is eternal. And it not only will not be moved, it cannot be moved. <laughs> Hallelujah. It's an impossibility to extinguish the kingdom of God amen. from the face of the earth. Just say amen. You may be seated here today. I want to talk about this present expression today of the kingdom of God. And I want to lay uh, some groundwork for this as we, I, I, I want to drive home for this church to get a fresh vision of who we are as the church. We are here presently in this world visibly to demonstrate, to reveal, to express, to expose 
what the kingdom of God is, how it operates, what it looks like, how the subjects are. There are things we cannot obviously do uh, uh, physically in the sense of the physical changes in the environment and the world is going to take place in that time. But there are things that are present in us. We are already in that kingdom. We are subjects and we are members, subjects and citizens of the kingdom of God presently. That's not a future hope. That's not a future possession right now if you're saved. Right now. Right now if you're saved. You are a subject of the kingdom of God. You live under the rule of the king and you belong to him and he is responsible for your life. Amen. And I'm glad for that. So I want to take that. I want to look at idea just a little bit. First of all, the king, as we understand, is seen primarily in Scripture as a civil ruler. When we think of religious matters, we don't typically think of a king. When we think of religious matters, we think of a priest or, or someone and uh, uh, some Levite in, in the Old Testament. And, of course, today, a pastor or a preacher, those are those that have uh, uh, some kind of civil or, or some kind of religious, rather, authority. But when we think of a king, typically our mind goes to that of a civil ruler. When it, in, the, in the Bible, the first king that will appear in Scripture, the first man that will be somewhat self-appointed and become the first king in the earth will be Nimrod. The Bible says the beginning of his kingdom, it was Babel. There in that land when they sought to build a city and to build a tower, it was in that land of Babel, the land of Shinar, that, that Nimrod would raise his head, if you will, as a mighty hunter before the Lord. He was a man that didn't mind being very verbal, being very expressive about his rebellion against God. He made it known that he was going against God's government. He was a rebel, and he was going against God's government, and he set himself up as a king over men. He had a kingdom. If he had a kingdom, then he is a king. And we see this. This will not happen in the earth until God has instituted civil government after the flood. We read of no kings prior to the flood. Civil government was not in vogue and there was only a family authority. Cities were built, but they were basically uh, run by fathers, if you will, and they were the heads over those uh, uh, towns and what forms of government were not really seen and known. And However, they may work and, and, and the relationships among them themselves. But after the flood, civil government is instituted and kings come to the earth. It became the dominant form of civil government and authority. You'll immediately begin to read about the kings here and kings there. In Abraham's time, he has problem with five kings that are going to come against and take the, the uh, kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. And these are just cities, but they have kings that are over them. And so, 
We might would call them city-states, as you will. And, and there in this area, they have kings, and, and, and there's a battle of the kings in the Valley of Salt. Abraham will become a part of that. You will read later in the Bible all kinds of, uh, of the nations around. When the Israelites uh, desired a king uh, because that's what others had. They didn't desire a republic. They already had that. But they desired a monarchy because that was the prevalent form of government. All the other nations around them had kings and there was a prevalent form of government and it has been probably the most prevalent form of government throughout history as governments have established themselves in the earth eventually there will be of course the nation of Israel will also become a monarchy it is an interesting thing even about America if you read history in the, in the early days of, uh, after the civil war not civil war I'm sorry uh, forgive me the war for independence from England and as that war was fought afterwards, we were leaving a monarchy. We had rejected the government and, and, not, and, and the governor more so of the monarchy of England. And we no longer wanted that. You know and you've heard of the rally cry for, for America and that battle was no king but King Jesus. That was a cry of the war for independence. But nevertheless, one of the things that became unique about this country because certain men understood what was better for the nation and, and particularly for the, the expansion of Christianity is that we formed a republic. We formed a republic, a constitutional republic rather than a monarchy. There were men that would have made George Washington king in this country. They wanted to make him a king. He had led them. He had been with them through thick and thin. I mean battle after battle. Uh, uh, there had been difficult times and he was there with his men on the field. It was his leadership. Congress many times was a lame duck and a lot of times they were struggling. They represented government but a lot of times in those early war years they had no power to tax. They couldn't pay the soldiers of the, of the uh, Continental Army and many of them fought for nothing. Many had already given all their possessions and they gave everything they had just to provide the, the country and the liberty that you and I possess today. And when that was over, they were far more loyal. That army that had won the battle and won the war and, and been able to secure America's independence, that army was far more loyal to George Washington than it was a Continental Congress. I promise you that. Those rascals in Congress had and, uh, had manipulated in their 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 um, politics and manipulated generals and and there been a lot of politicking going on among the generals and and uh, it was just have been a mess many many years and people weren't paid but uh, they were loyal to George Washington but George Washington thank God was a man who didn't want the glory uh, we didn't fight for this we didn't fight to have another monarchy we fought to have a republic I believe and know that the reason America America stood so long is because of the type of government that was handed to us in that hour and that we were not a monarchy but I will tell you where we're headed is a monarchy. We are today. We are citizens of America but more importantly we are citizens of the kingdom of God and we're under a king. Hallelujah. We live under a king and his name is Jesus and again I think that's what this nation realized. No king but King Jesus. We have a king 
And we don't want to give that kind of allegiance to a man here. We don't want to give that kind of allegiance to someone who's mere flesh. When we give the allegiance of a king, we want to give it to Jesus who is worthy of it beyond every other man that's ever lived. Kings are unique rulers. They are rulers that demand worship. We have rulers that are presidents. We have lower magistrates. We have congressmen. But in our type of republic where we have checks and balances upon areas and there are branches of government so that a power and, and authority is shared and divided among various branches, then it means that not one person deserves this kind of honor and dignity given to them so much so that they would separate themselves out to, be, to demand worship, if you will. It is a very dangerous thing when you have one man with absolute power over a country. As the statement you know well says, absolute power absolutely corrupts. And that's what it does. And any king in the earth, more often than not, uh, when he has that kind of absolute power before no long, he believes himself to be a god and is commanding worship from from the people. It happened in the days of Christ in the Roman Empire. Rome begins as a republic but will soon become an empire with the king and Caesar. He'll be the first. The first will be the one who is alive and reigning at the time of Jesus when he is born into this earth. His name is called he named himself Augustus. He was Caesar Augustus which means is a title given to deity. He was God and he proclaimed himself to be a God under the people. There were many emperors who declared themselves to be God and commanded worship from the citizens of the empire. But kings were always often that way. They were rulers. They demanded worship. They displayed much pomp and circumstance and had dictatorial power. They were also often the judge and jury of all court cases. The king would set the moral standard for the nation and often set fashion standards in clothing as they became the very glory of the nation. If you were in a country or a kingdom, the glory of your kingdom was all bound up in the honor or the character or the personality of your king. If you had a bad king, you had a bad kingdom. If you had a good king, you had a good kingdom. Everything was tied up in that one ruler over the nation. Again, they would have the all of their glory. In other words, when you have this kind of leader, he wasn't just there doing the civil business of a country. He sat on a throne. He had um, a cur uh, couriers of the court of courtiers of the court. There were men around him who were there to to do the work of the day-to-day -day business. The king didn't do the work of some of the day-to-day -day grind that went on. That wasn't his business. He took care of larger matters. But when you came before this king, you didn't come any old way. You didn't walk. Matter of fact, you didn't get an audience with him without certain protocol and certain conditions. Not just anybody could walk into the presence of the king. But when you did come into the presence of the king, you didn't come into his presence and saying, hey, I'll put you in office 
And you know, I'd just like you to know that I'm here and I, I got to talk to you about something. When you came in, you bowed the knee, buddy. Yes, sir. You kissed the scepter. You took the hand of the king and you kissed him. That for us is foreign. That for us almost seems to be obnoxious. But that was not the state that was set in the world year after year and country after country. People understood when you went in the presence of the king, you bowed your knee, you laid yourself prostrate before them you took the hand you kissed the ring you kissed the scepter whatever it was you spoke very very carefully in the presence of the king you sought his honor you sought his approval you wanted to make sure you did nothing to anger him because your future your livelihood your petition your need everything is hinging on that king well I'm going to tell you we bowed the knee we've kissed the scepter oh glory to the Lamb of God and I would be careful how we talk to the king of our glory today that we can know let him know that we are his and we're delighted to be a subject in the kingdom of Jesus Christ this will be the standard that will be set the vision as the kingdoms are established in the earth one day Israel will be this, but God has a vision as well. He's going to cast his vision of his kingdom. This will first be mentioned in Scripture relative in the covenant that he makes with Abraham. He's promised Abraham a particular place in the earth, his seed, and that his seed is going to have a particular place. And the Bible says forever. He promises Abraham a seed that will live in the earth forever. And later on, more details would come in God's covenant with David. And he said, David, I'm going to build you a house. And you're going to have one that will sit upon your throne and your kingdom will be established forever. The kingdom of God, if you will. And that will be found. The king in Psalm, for example, in Psalm 89, he says this. Give me just a second. I'd like to read it to you. Psalm 89 and verse 1. In verse 2, the Bible said, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known thy faithfulness to all generations. For I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. Thy faithfulness shalt thou establish in the very heavens. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David my servant. Thy seed will I establish forever and build up thy throne to all generations. And he lets us know who's going to sit on that throne is none other than the Lord of hosts, the King of glory, and it will be forever. So a promise of a kingdom upon the earth. The Lord is going to let us know that the final government and former government on the earth is going to be a monarchy. And the one that's going to sit on that throne is going to be Jesus Christ. And so the Jews from the, from the, the time beginning with the covenant with Abraham and the covenant with David... They had been anticipating a kingdom and where they would have a very important part in that kingdom. Their nation was going to be unique because the ruler would have ties to the Jewish people. He'd be a son of Abraham. He'd be a son of David. He would come from the tribe of Judah. In other words, think about that. If you were a part of a race of people and the promise was to your race that the future world ruler is going to come from your seed, is going to come from your people, and there'll be one kingdom in all of the earth and it'll be the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Oh my, what a promise that God had made. Oh yeah, 
The prophets spoke about the coming of God's kingdom to earth and they were anticipating a coming kingdom. When Jesus Christ came into this earth, understand that it was such that they were yet looking for the kingdom of God to appear. There were those that were looking for his salvation. They were looking for the righteous king to come. But it was a handful of people and not very, very many. It wasn't something that was as widespread as it should have been, but in a handful of people who were looking for this kingdom. And they, the Lord promised that it would come. And the Jews were looking forward. The world at large was not looking forward. There's one group of people in the earth that are anticipating the king coming from glory and establishing his kingdom upon the earth. It would be in the Jerusalem and uh, David's throne and that would be the one that would rule over the earth and it would be unending. It'd be everlasting. Daniel talked about it. Isaiah, all of the prophets will prophesy about this coming of the kingdom in one form or fashion, typically or another, they will express that. That was the future. That was the look. Now you got to get that down because the, when Jesus came, he came to a people that were looking for a king. He came as king. Oh my, that's the whole birth around when we look at his birth. They came from the places of the earth and came. Where is he that's born king of the Jews? Where is he that's born king of the Jews? You're not the king, Herod. Oh, no, Herod could say, I'm king of the Jews. Oh, no, you're not king of the Jews. We've seen the stars, and there's another that's born. Where is he at? Where is this king of the Jews? That was the mindset that they were looking for. It wasn't a false mindset. It was a biblical mindset. But I want you to understand something. Something So in this concept of the Old Testament that was given, that the Jewish people looking for a coming king, they also understood something else, that prior to, immediately prior to the establishment of that kingdom, there would be what would be known as the day of the Lord or the day of the Lord's wrath, that there would be before this kingdom would be established in the world, it would be immediately preceded by a time of judgment, a judgment that was severe, a judgment that would wipe out nations. If you're going to come and establish your kingdom, do you think? Let's just ask ourselves a question here. So the Lord comes with his kingdom and to establish it. He's not going to open up the heavens and, and present himself as king and say, hey, all of you kings down there, I'm coming to rule over you. So would you just kindly set your thrones aside? Would you just kindly step down from your places of power because it's my kingdom now. Now he doesn't come asking anybody's position. He just moves them out of the way. He doesn't need that position. He's the king. If they want to submit to his government, if they'll bow the knee and kiss the scepter, they can remain. But if they want to be in rebellion and keep their kingdom, he's going to eliminate them. There will be a time of gross persecution, a time of great judgment and sorrow and blackness and darkness. The heavens will be shaken. The moon will be turned into blood. The sun will cease to give its light before that great and notable day of the Lord, before the kingdom will be established. They expected a holocaust. They expected a great judgment and fire to purge this world. That was the mind and the expectation. But what was not told them in the Old Testament is that there would be two comings. And the king would come first and he would save 
and provide for a space of time of mercy and grace before he comes to bring that judgment. Now you've got to get that in your mind, all right? You talk about that great coming kingdom and they looked at but before that great kingdom could be established, there had to be a horrible time of judgment upon the earth. Daniel will tell us seven years of it. Seven years of some of the greatest calamities the earth has ever known. We'll get the detail of it in the book of Revelation. But much of that was told already by the prophets of the Old Testament. Many things we know about the tribulation do not come from Revelation. They come from those Old Testament prophets who told us the great judgment that was coming upon the face of the earth. But God now comes... And when he comes, he now reveals that in this time, what he's going to do before he brings that kingdom to full manifestation and before that final day of judgment comes, he is going to build this institution he calls his church. And he's going to call out. He's going to reach out to the world. And out from among the populace, he's going to call a church out from all of them. And he's going to build that church. And if you become a member of that church, then you're going to be spared that day of wrath that's come upon the earth. Oh, glory. See, that day of wrath has got to come. You can't have the kingdom until you have the day of wrath. You can't have the day of peace until you have the day of judgment and the day of the Lord's wrath. And so, but if you will escape that wrath and you'll be able to enter into that kingdom, then you must be a part of this church. And it's to this church that he gives to them the kingdom. He deposits it's in this church, uh, his presence. Uh, he will be with them, his power and his authority so that the church will demonstrate that before the kingdom comes uh, as a full civil uh, institution in the earth, uh, it will first be demonstrated in its moral and spiritual elements. Uh, so before the full civil institution is displayed, the moral and spiritual elements of the kingdom will be demonstrated in the church of Jesus Christ. We're already the citizens. We already have authority. We already in some sense we are being prepared. We're being prepared to be rulers with Christ but we already reign with him. We reign in life. We may not be reigning over cities but we do reign over our passions. Woo! Glory to the Lamb of God. We may not be reigning over nations but we do reign over the things in this life so that we can take what we possess and use it for the glory of God. We're not the slaves of sin we're the subjects of Jesus Christ. We're not the servants of the devil. We're the servants of God Almighty. We live in the kingdom of light and the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. We live in his presence. We live by his ethic. And we exercise his authority. Now I want to just give you a few things here this morning. There are several reasons why God does this. And I'd just like to drive some of this principle home so you can get it in you. There are several reasons why the Lord has established his church. Why didn't he just come and bring the wrath and set up his kingdom? Well, I can't speak for you, but I'm kind of glad he did it the way he did it. I'm not kind of glad. I'm really glad. I'm not really glad. I'm out of my skin shouting glad. I'm telling you that I can be a part of that kingdom today. Woo, 
Hallelujah. Oh, am I delighted in that. But I want to give you a few reasons why the Lord has done this and given this the space of time. As I've said, before that eternal kingdom can be immediately established, it must be immediately preceded by the day of the Lord, a day of judgment. To bring the kingdom of God to earth immediately would destroy the bulk of the population. Imagine at the time that Christ came, look how much sin had prevailed in the world at the coming of Jesus Christ the first time to this earth. Imagine if that day when he came, that he brought his wrath, that when he went to the river Jordan, imagine when he went there and if that would have been the beginning of it that wouldn't have been but but let's just say at that moment when he's announced at 30 years of age and here he is here is the king here is God's son uh, eternal son right here brought to humanity imagine if at that time he would have stretched out his scepter and said death to the rebel death to the criminal oh that you will be destroyed because you've rebelled I am the one that God has approved of I am the beloved son and you have rejected right Right now bow the knee and love me or death is imminent and would come and imagine it would have been a bloodbath across this world and it had been left with just a handful of people. Oh my, but I'm telling you it's been an act of great grace that God has said this, before I bring that judgment I'm going to come and die for the people and I'm going to give them some time so that the kingdoms of the world before they give themselves or have to bow under the judging hand of the Lord they can have a, a time ahead of time. They can bow their knee now. They can accept the king before he comes. They can know his righteousness before he comes. They don't have to endure that judgment. They don't have to endure that wrath. They can know the king of glory. Hallelujah. They can experience his mercy and grace instead of his hand of judgment. Woo. The church age will give a time for the kingdom's power and righteousness to be demonstrated in the earth prior to the age of righteousness. This is very, very important because it's going to prove something. Imagine if the king had come again and just set up his kingdom in the midst of that pagan culture, in the midst of that pagan society. He eliminates all the pagans, eliminates all the idols, burns all that up and starts out, if you will, with a handful of people. Well, I'm going to tell you something. It would be seen that, hey, the only way that Christ's righteousness can prevail is by force. Look, he's only got just a handful of people that will love him. He's only got a handful of people that want his righteousness, but my. So he has to come and force his righteousness upon everybody because he's stronger and because he's bigger and he can wipe out the armies of the earth because he's got all the angels he can do it with and he's got all this power. So that's not very big righteousness and, and it would be a good argument. Yes, sir. If your standard of morality can only be accepted and imposed upon the people by force, it's not a very good standard. In other words, if people don't adopt it because they see the, the value of it and see the validity and the honor of it, if they only adopt your morality because you hold a sword at their throat, that's not very good morality, is it? No, sir. But I'll tell you what it's going to prove, that all through these ages, while kings are reigning, while, while uh, uh, dictators are reigning, wicked men are ruling, and sin is prevailing, it would seem in the 
earth. I'll tell you what Jesus is going to show that there are people that will choose my righteousness in the midst of that unrighteousness, in the midst of the wickedness in the world. I'm going to hold myself up on the cross. I'm going to be lifted up on the cross and I'm going to draw me to me and they're going to leave their sin. They're going to look at me on that cross of Calvary and it's going to be enough. It's going to be enough to tell them I'm done with sin. I'm done with unrighteousness. I'm done with wickedness. I want nothing of the kingdoms of this world. Give me the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give me the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the very final moments of the Lord's death upon the cross, there is one beside him says that very statement. He reproves his fellow thief and says it's we who deserve to die. This man does not deserve to die. And he looks at that one in the middle and he says, sir, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. <laughs> Woo! Hallelujah. Remember me when you're sitting on the throne. I don't want the kingdom of Rome. I don't want the kingdom and the empire of the Caesars. I want the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Ah, oh, Caesar. Caesar never died for me. Caesar never gave me that. I'll take Jesus. Hallelujah. Glory to the Lamb of God. Woo. It will prove this age is proving that the righteousness of Christ can survive in the midst of a sinful world, in the midst of pagan cultures. <laughs> Hallelujah. So that when that kingdom does come in its finality, it doesn't come to a bunch of folks who doesn't want it. It's coming and there's a bunch of folks that are crying, thy kingdom come, thy kingdom come, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come, thy kingdom come. Generation after generation will make that their plea. Amidst the kingdoms of this world, they will cry for the coming rule of Jesus Christ. The third reason the Lord will provide this is because the church will provide the leadership in the Lord's coming kingdom. Every king has this. We see it. If I can use the American illustration, though our president is not king, the process is the, simply the same. Every time we have a new president, we get a new cabinet. He gathers around him his counselors. He gathers around him his advisors. Most of it is just for political purposes. Those that have done him a favor, he gives, does them a favor. It's all based on self-interest. Most of it is. And so he has his cabinet. These are the ones that are going to rule with him. The one, the king, has his court. He may take generals from his army. He may take this person over here. And he establishes them to be rulers in the earth with him in his kingdom. Well, when Jesus Christ comes back, yes, we know that Christ in and of himself is king. But you're ruling in the earth. It's not that Christ is not capable. But this earth was meant to be under the reign of men. And not just one man, only one man at the head, but others that are ruling 
and reigning under him. But who will be his cabinet? Who will he choose? Will it be just a few earthlings that are available when the Lord comes? Who's going to be the ones who will sit at his side? Who will be the magistrates and the judges and the courts? Oh, glory. I tell you, when Jesus comes, he won't need the first 60 days to get his cabinet approved. Oh, hallelujah. He won't need the first six months so he can make his political appointments. Who's going to rule here? Who's going to take this position? It's already done. Woo! Glory to the Lamb of God. It's already been settled. They're the church of Jesus Christ. We rule and reign with him. And right now, he is conditioning and preparing a people to be a part of the cabinet of the Lord Jesus Christ. We will sit in authority with the king. Woo! Hallelujah. Do you know why you ought to learn God's law and how God operates? Our emphasis in Christianity has just been getting saved. We place so much emphasis on forgiveness. We place so little emphasis on living right. And when we do live right, it's just so we can be saved. You see where we're headed here? Could God put you over a city? Huh? You're having a hard time just dealing with the kids, let alone deal with the city. Hello? You're struggling in your relationships with your wife or husband or brother or sister. How in the world are you going to rule and reign with Christ? Come on. You can't handle relationships now. I don't suppose you'll be able to handle them then. Oh, come on now. Hallelujah. You're not able to relate now. You're not able to deal now. You have no heart to work now. You'll have no heart to work then. You're not going to be placed in a reign and in a position where the Lord can use you. No, sir. But again, our emphasis has been, I got to get to heaven. I just be glad when I can get out of here. Well, I'm not too, I, 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 I can tell you I'm interested in getting out of here, but I'm getting out of here to go away. I tell you where I'm going. I'm going to that kingdom. Oh, praise the Lord. I want to be worthy. I want God to put me through the fire. I want God to let me know his laws. I want to learn how to lead as a godly leader would lead. And so the Lord can say, I can put him here. I can put him there. Read the parable of the talents. Read the parable of the pounds. That's what it's all about. If you will rule, you must serve. If you will be productive there, you've got to be productive here. What kind of product are you producing? What kind of life have you put out? What has your Christian testimony produced in the age in which we live now? Don't talk about reigning with Christ when you have no concept of that in your Christianity now. Mm. <laughs> Hallelujah. Fourthly, the church will be comprised of people from every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. When the Lord returns to this earth, we read this in the tribulation, in Revelation, about the tribulation. There are going to be a host of Gentiles. There will be a host of Jews. But there will have been, by the time that comes, 
societies, nations, races that have disappeared. So that when the Lord comes, all of the races of people, the ethnic groups and languages that exist then will not be a portrait of what has existed since the beginning of time. There are languages that have disappeared. There are families that largely have disappeared. (laughs) But Jesus' kingdom is not just eternal future. It's not just something that's going to drop into history without any respect for the past. No. Jesus Christ is going to have a representative in that kingdom out of every kindred and every tongue and every tribe and every nation. Hallelujah. Yes, there may have been at that time a language group that had disappeared. But somewhere, somewhere in time past, there was one that God pulled out. There was one that he called out from among them. And they said, I'll have that. I'll have the kingdom of God. Hallelujah. And he has kept them preserved in his presence. So when he comes back to the earth, it won't be the people who are just alive at that time, but there'll be a representative out of every kindred, every tongue, every tribe, every nation, all of humanity will be represented in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Woo! The king will not be seen as a failure. He'll not be seen as someone just taking over. He'll be seen as one that's been ruling through the ages. And when the world thought they destroyed this language and it's no more, I got my representative. I got my representative. I've got one from that family. I got one from that group. I got one from that group. They are mine and mine forever. Hallelujah. The church will provide the examples of life in the new kingdom. How would it be for Christ to come and establish his kingdom in the earth and there were no seasoned examples of how you live in such a kingdom? Trying to drive this home on your psyche. It's an aspect of the church that we've gotten away from. You as a Christian are in the kingdom of God. You live under his reign. You live by his law. You honor his authority. And if you do, you will exercise his authority. But I'm telling you something. We know now how to live. But when he comes to earth... And if it just be the living upon the earth when he sets up that kingdom, I'm telling you, who is going to demonstrate to those people what it's like? They've been living under other kingdoms and used to that. Who's going to show them? Who's going to be able to tell them? No, here's what the law of the Lord says. Here's what God's people do. Here's what God's people look at or look like and look at as well. I can tell you right now that that church is going to be present. What a beauty. Oh, the beauty of that bride in her glory. Imagine the king at that marriage supper in all of his pomp and circumstance. Heaven's angels gathered around because they're coming with him too. 
Yes, sir. There'll be angels present and visible. I believe at that time in the earth, the angelic world will not be a guessing game any longer. The angelic world will not be left to your imagination anymore. This world is going to know his kingdom is universal. It doesn't just extend to the earth. It extends to the universe and beyond. It even extends to heaven. It's not just the kingdom of God here on earth. It's the kingdom of heaven. 33 times Matthew will call it such. It's the kingdom of heaven. It's the kingdom of heaven. It's our Father which art in heaven. It's the kingdom of heaven. I'm telling you the kingdom of our Lord is not relegated just to a place in Jerusalem or to this planet. He owns what's beyond. He rules what's beyond. Every angel must kiss the scepter. Every seraph must kiss the scepter. Every cherub must kiss the scepter. He is Lord of all that there is. Woo! Hallelujah, hallelujah. Angels filling the atmosphere, men upon the earth. But what a spectacle to look and see glorified humanity ah, seated with Christ. Woo. They look on you shining my, in your garment of simple white linen, fine and clean. Ah, unsoiled garments. Imagine us going around the glory of God's light shining from us. That white linen that is ours riding upon our horses. Woo. Glory to the Lamb of God. And the world looking on him. My, my, my. There's your example. There's your example. There, let me look at those folks. That's what I'd like to be like. That's who I want to imitate. Oh, can you live a life today that somebody can model their life after? How many of you in this place this morning are willing to say my life is a good model of what it is to be as a disciple of Jesus. We're going to a kingdom. Oh, we're going to ruin reign. Yeah. What are you doing to be fitted for that? Rulers have to be examples. Those that reign must first be illustrations of what it is that they propagate. Amen. That's our problem today. Our leaders are pathetic examples. And we're following their lead and it's not making us better. It's making us worse because we've lowered the standard for leadership. It doesn't matter if he's an adulterer. Doesn't matter if he's an idolater. Doesn't matter if he's a fornicator. He can still preach good. Oh yes, he's got a good personality. He's sweet. Ah, Jesus isn't looking for sweet people. He ain't looking for people with good personalities. He's looking for holy people. <laughs> Hallelujah! He didn't come to make you sweet. He didn't come to make you have a, a charismatic personality. He came to make you holy. Glory to the Lamb of God, because those that rule with Him will be a holy people. They'll be a holy people. Those who stand in God's presence will have clean hands and a pure heart. Hallelujah. Woo! Glory. Fifthly or sixthly, wherever point I'm at, Israel has a special place in that kingdom. The Lord's throne will be located in the leading city of Israel, Jerusalem. 
The temple in Jerusalem will be his temple. It will be the center of activity and government on this earth. A large portion of people that will be on this earth when Christ comes will be Jews. Let me express something to you. There's been some, some study and thought and input from trusted men of the word. I've adjusted my thinking somewhat on this matter. Where I stand presently in my study of the word, and I think it's far more consistent with scripture to make sense of this kingdom, is that the church will be concluded at the rapture. There is a reason, I've said it before, but I don't think I followed through with it, that after Revelation chapter 3, the last verse, the church doesn't appear till we get to the, see the bride, which is when Christ comes back. That's when it's seen again. The word church isn't mentioned. There's no mention of the church in the earth. No mention whatsoever. So that people who are saved during tribulation do not become part of the church. The church is concluded at the rapture. That's his. He's called them out of that special time. And then he brings the tribulation. I've come to believe, I think it's more consistent that at the rapture that's coming, the only ones that will be raptured in that rapture will be those that are part of the church, living and dead. So that from Pentecost forward will be the only ones in that group of people. The Lord clearly made a distinction between John at the end of that time that John was closing an era. He called Jen, John not the bride, but the friend of the bridegroom. You can't be the friend of the bridegroom and the bride of the bridegroom at the same time. We're not called the friend of the bridegroom. We're called the bride of the bridegroom. But John represented an era that was coming to a close. An era of Old Testament saints that was coming to a close. And the large part of that Old Testament saints are Jewish people. If you consider the people, I don't say there's not Gentiles in that crowd. I'm not telling you that. But I'm going to tell you right now, that world was wicked, buddy. And God called Abraham out. And when he established that nation, when we read that Bible, we may get a few people outside of that. There's a few Ruths who are going to come into that kingdom. There's some that are uh, some Naomi's and or there's some others, rather not Naomi, but she's only part. But Ruth is going to be brought into that. There will be others who will, will be made a part. Rahab and some that will come in and be a part of that kingdom. But the large portion of Old Testament righteous people are Jewish people. They were acquainted with the law. They lived in the nation of Israel. And, the, and, and John represented the close of that era. And that now from the birth, the church's birth at Pentecost, and I believe we'll find its conclusion at the rapture. So that every saint that was in Christ, the Old Testament, 
Roman saints were not said to be in Christ. They were looking for Christ, but they were not in Christ. But it's those that are in Christ, the alive and the dead. If you died in Christ, that is that you were born past post-Pentecost into this thing and you were part of that church, you died in Christ, you'll go into rapture. If you're alive and remain in Christ when the rapture takes place, you're going to go in the rapture. And I think that is a valid cutoff point. So what do we do with these Old Testament saints? Again, the larger part of them are Jews. I believe the most logical place now for them to be resurrected will be at the resurrection when the Lord returns to this earth. When he returns to this earth, he mentions. He doesn't mention them. You can disagree with me on your point, uh, on this point if you want to. I'm simply going to espouse a consistency here. And, I, and so that when he returns to this earth at the end of tribulation, he, he, there's a resurrection. That's clear. Revelation 20. A resurrection is mentioned. It mentions he saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the cause of Jesus. That would be during the tribulation period uh, and that time they were beheaded. But I think that also that it's at that time he's coming and when he comes back to this earth, he is going to establish his kingdom. What the Jews have been hoping for when he came the first time is going to be a reality when he comes the second time. They've looked for him to put Israel back in its proper place. Put us back on the map, Lord. Put us back where we rule among the nations of the earth and David will be on his throne. I believe that will be the time that at that resurrection He'll resurrect all of those Old Testament saints, the bulk of who are no doubt Jewish people. And when he resurrects them and brings them under this earth, they will also have, because you're resurrected, you get a glorified body, but they will not be a part of the church because they did not live in that era under the Holy Ghost baptism and persecuted for the cause of Christ. They did not live under that time frame that you and I have lived in a special time that we've been in, but they will be a part of that kingdom And can I tell you something, uh, that when he comes back to this earth and all of a sudden Israel is elevated uh, as a nation of the world, uh, all of these dead saints uh, that have been brought back to life uh, and have had a Jewish past, uh, they're going to be thick uh, in this world, uh, all over this planet. uh, No doubt functions and roles to do uh, in society. I have no problem with that whatsoever. But I want you to understand something. And it doesn't mean that they can't also rule under Christ. We rule with a special place. We rule as bride. They can rule in a different relationship. David's going to sit on the throne in Jerusalem, but not from the perspective of bride, from the perspective of friend. John will be friend of the bridegroom. In the Old Testament, saints, Abraham was called the friend of God. And they can rule as friends. It doesn't mean they have a promise they can reign too. But I want you to see this point. I believe it's valid. I'm not going to be dogmatic. I just believe it's a a valid concept. And that is that when you have Israel all of a sudden taking its place and many Israelites ruling and reigning because Israel becomes a center. People come to them. They even are given dominion over their old enemies and and territories that their enemies had had. Read that Old Testament. And Israel is going to reign in those areas. And they're going to be, uh, people are going to now see them. The Jews have been looked down on from 
time past almost eternal, it seems like. They've been spit on. They've been run over. They've been pushed down. They've been choked. They've been killed and buried time and again. And God will say no more. I called that people out. It's from that people that the Messiah came. They preserved my word. They died for my name and my cause. And I'm going to elevate them in the earth. But can I tell you something? It wouldn't be right if that crowd got elevated to a place that was put and all other races were left out and all other nations were left out. No, sir. The one that sits at his side, the one that sits, they may have a special place, but not a supreme place. The one who sits at his side will be out of every kindred and every tongue and every tribe and every nation. It'll have Jews in it. It'll have Paul. It'll have Peter. It'll have James. It'll have John. It'll have men that accepted the Messiah. And they ought to get a special place. They were there and endorsed him when others refused him. It's in the church that he takes Jew and Gentile and makes them one. So let it be that the crowd that sits at his side will be the crowd that is representative of all of humanity and not just one race of people. Not just one nation. So that again, because their place will not be a place where they will be, can be proud and lifted up above others. Jesus didn't come just to save Jews. He came to save humanity. Woo. And the bride will represent that. Not only that, the church will provide a representative group of people who will greatly appreciate, delight in, and understand the value of the kingdom of Christ. We will live, oh my, we will have lived in 2,000 years. The Christian has lived under every form of government. They've lived under every tyrant you can imagine. They've lived under empires in Rome. They've lived in Russia. They've lived in China. They've lived in England. They've lived in America. We've seen every government, form of government come and go even since then. And the church has endured it all. I'm glad that when the Lord comes again, it's not a kingdom that's just enforced upon that generation generation then and there but he's got folks that have been hoping for that so that when I get there oh hallelujah I can say hey well this is this is a surprise well this is nice I didn't expect this I can say thank you Jesus I've been yearning I've been hoping I've been praying I've been preaching I've been looking I've been preparing I've been telling everybody get ready get ready get ready get ready the king is coming the king is coming. It isn't America forever. It isn't Russian forever. It isn't China forever. It's Jesus forever. It's Jesus forever. It's the kingdom of God for all eternity. Let it be that at the entrance of that kingdom that every man and woman that has put their faith in God and died in faith and hope and looked for a city whose builder and maker was God will get to enjoy and be a part of that kingdom. So it's not just for that generation. It's for every generation. Enoch, you get to see it. Noah, you get to see it. Abraham, you get to live in it. Joshua, it's yours. Moses, Elijah, it's yours. Woo, glory. Peter, James, John, John the Baptist, it's yours. I'm telling you, when it comes, he will have raised the church of the rapture. He will have resurrected the rest. At some point before we get there, he's going to resurrect them. 
and from every kindred and tongue and tribe and nation there will be a people who have come to the kingdom and have hoped and yearned and prayed and watched and waited and worked for the Lord to bring about his kingdom upon this earth Woo! I'm going to close right here This was a far more prominent fact and principle of the preaching of the New Testament church than it is in the church of today. Matthew, who exclusively uses the phrase, the gospel of heaven, uses it 33 times in his gospel. Luke's phrase is the gospel or the kingdom of God. 33 times in his gospel, 7 times in the book of Acts, 40 times in the writing of Luke, he writes of the kingdom of God. 70 times the phrase kingdom of God appears in the New Testament. You reckon that's important? New Testament saints preaching the kingdom of God. Three times in the gospel of Matthew, it will use the phrase the gospel of the kingdom. And when this gospel of the kingdom shall have been preached in all the world, <laughs> oh yes, as a witness, oh, I may have left some of you, some of you swimming a little bit in your theology. That's all right. It won't hurt you. It's all right. When you look at that uh, tribulation too, and at Matthew 24, look at the instruction about surrounding the Christ instruction and his coming kingdom. It was most of it directed to Jews. He didn't direct it to the church. The church learns a principle of watching and waiting but in the gospel Jesus directed his instruction about his second coming to Jews because that's going to be one of the principal groups that comes out of the tribulation it's called the day of Jacob's trouble it would be befitting that those who have died for his name during the tribulation would be raised with those who had died for Jehovah's name prior to that time if you may not agree with that it's not going to make any difference I'm just telling you don't miss it All right, I'm telling you don't miss it because but if you miss it you're in a heap of trouble. You got one concern today. I'm telling you, I can say for certain when your resurrection is going to be, if you live right, it's going to be at the rapture when Jesus comes. And if you make that when you won't have to worry about the rest of it, God will take care of it. But I'm here to tell you the kingdom's coming. The kingdom's coming. The kingdom is coming. And we better get ourselves ready. Acts begins in Acts chapter 1 and verse 13 or verse 3. The Bible said that Jesus, in those days, he spoke to his disciples, his apostles, things pertaining to his kingdom. Acts begins by talking about the kingdom. The last verse of the book of Acts, Paul was in prison in Rome, and he says he's preaching the kingdom of God. Acts, the Bible tells us in verse chapter 28 and verse 31 that Paul was preaching the kingdom of God. This was central to the church, and I'm going to close right here this morning. What do I mean by that? Please, I challenge you. And through these messages, I'm going to be talking to you. I'm going to tell you, get out of your mindset of just having a comfortable life and living a clean life. And that's about all you're doing. You're living a clean life. You're living a comfortable life. You've got your nice home. You've got your nice cars. Everything's in place. You go to a good church. You get a shower.
out. Your kids are living good and you got a nice clean life, but you're making no impact on the world around you. You're not getting ready for a kingdom. You're just living comfortable until the Lord comes. I want everyone in this church to get on board and know something. You're in the kingdom of Christ. You're in the kingdom of Christ. You've got a commission. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Tell them, tell them the king is on his way. Stand to your feet this morning. How many of you believe God wants to still save sinners? Why do you believe that, Brother Woods? Because the Bible says the long-suffering of the Lord is salvation. That's why. The church isn't finished. Got a few more to add to it. It's going to be done here in a little while. It's going to wrap it up. The church has a special function throughout history, eternity, and future. We're a special group. It doesn't take away from other people's place in the kingdom. Man, anybody in the kingdom is blessed. <laughs> blessed is he that eats bread in the kingdom of God. Woo-hoo. Amen. If you're in the kingdom... That's what he said about John. He told him, he said, the least in the kingdom is greater than John. That must have held some value somewhere. Yeah, because right then and there, they could be in the kingdom. Woo, glory. John was dying out an old face in that response. But right now, people were coming and they could enjoy. So the kingdom of God suffers violence and the violent take it by force. Right now, they're wrestling against this kingdom. People would like for it not to be a reality. They'd like to shut up the mouth of the church. They'd like to stop us from preaching. They'd like to Keep us from telling the gospel, standing up for our rights and our liberty and telling them Jesus is a coming king. They like to shut it out. It suffers violence. But I'm telling you, I'm going to lay hold of it anyway. The violent take it by force. Get a hold of it today. If you are passive in this hour and you're a nominal churchgoer, you're going to lose out. I don't know how that took you. I'm telling you, you're going to lose out. Yes, come on, come on. Get on board. Right. See where we're going. Yes. Let's let this church be a message of what it is to be in the kingdom of God. Yes.